Um, well, this morning we have a special All Saints treat, um, which is um, that we have a member of our lay preaching cohort that's going to be speaking today, Stephanie Kramer. The lay preaching cohort has been going on for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years now. Pastor John started it up and has been training some of the lay people in our church to preach, and we've already gotten to hear from uh, Dr. Stephanie Kramer in the past, and we look forward to hearing her this morning from Romans 4. All right, good morning, Incarnation. Um, go ahead and pray with me um, before we get started. Um, Lord Jesus, we are grateful for all of the saints um, that you give us that we can look back on um, and just draw faith and encouragement from. We pray that you would um, surround us with them this morning, that as we sit in our own little individual bubbles, um, that we would feel surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses um, that are listening with us. Um, we pray that you would give us the faith to believe the words that you have us this morning, um, that you would be our good teacher. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so our passage today is from Romans 4, and it focuses on the great Old Testament father of faith, Abraham, that you already started to hear about in the children's sermon. Um, now, many of you might be familiar with this children's song about Abraham. <clears throat> father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. My apologies if that's now stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Um, but today is All Saints Day, and so I would like to reimagine that song with slightly different lyrics. You and I have many fathers. Many fathers have you and I. Abraham's one of them, and so is David. So let's all praise the Lord. Now, admittedly, my version does not flow quite as smoothly, um, but I think that the lyrics are appropriate for All Saints Day, and they capture the, the theme of the day well. Um, there's a common saying that we use when we think about great leaders of the past. We say um, that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And we use that phrase to mean that we got to where we are now because of the hard work and the accomplishments of those who came before us. Now, what I find compelling about All Saints Day is that yes, we do. We remember the great faithful men and women of the past, both those that we read about in scripture, like Abraham, and those who came after, even up until our own relatives who have died and are now risen with Christ. And in many ways, we do stand on the shoulders of these giants, right? They are people that we can look to for encouragement and strength for our own faith. But I think perhaps even better, they are not just people whose shoulders we stand on, but whose shoulders that we rub side by side in an eternal community. They're not distant biblical heroes whose faith is untouchable, but they're brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And that I find very comforting, particularly in a season that doesn't provide many chances for standing shoulder to shoulder. Um, you can think about the last time that that actually happened. Um, and in a world that doesn't always provide us with family members who are faithful saints. So today we remember our eternal family of saints. Now, Romans 4 uses Abraham as a great figure of faith to further unpack this topic of justification that we also heard about last week. But this passage more specifically addresses the questions of when and how Abraham was justified. And then it follows up by asking and answering the question of how Abraham received his justification, which was by faith. So we're going to look at those three points this morning, the timing of Abraham's justification, um, how it happened, and then how he was justified the nature of his faith. Now, just like a realtor might look at a piece of property and think location, 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 when it comes to deciding its value, 
Um, when we think about justification, Paul says it's critical to think about timing, timing, timing. Now, what do I mean by that? If you think of a news story or a criminal trial, so much relies around timing, right? A man's guilt or innocence can hinge on timing. Did the house get broken into before or after the suspect allegedly left work? What's the timing on the surveillance tapes? Does the timing of the suspect's alibi hold up in court? Did they shoot him before or after he started to run away? We can all imagine movie plots as well as real life trials in which those important details of timing are critical. And Paul is saying the same thing here. It's all about timing. Look at verses nine through 10. They read, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul here is answering the question about the timing of Abraham's justification. When do we consider Abraham to be justified, to be made righteous for God? Before we unpack that question more, let's review what it means to be justified. It means to stand before God unashamed, totally accepted, without fear, legally made righteous and without fault. It includes not only to be sinless before the judge, declared innocent of all our bad choices and to have our wrongs made right, but also to be righteous, to have God's goodness and love counted for us. So with that in mind, Paul takes up this question of the timing of Abraham's justification of when he was considered righteous. Now, there were many in Israel at the time who understood that justification would happen on the last day, the final day. Many Jews believed that they would appear before God and he would get out his final checklist and go down the list. Circumcised, check. Part of God's chosen people, check. Obeyed the moral law, check. Did the sacrifices so forgiveness could happen, check. And then you kind of hope that you hear approved, you may enter. And what you find in most world religions is that you won't know if you're justified until the last day. And so you try to get as many A's and as few F's as possible before meeting God. And when you do finally meet him, you just hope that you got a high enough grade to pass the test and be granted a type of final peace. But what we see here is that Paul is saying something radically different. He's saying that the moment someone trusts in who Jesus is and what he has done, they are justified. They're justified. They're declared righteous before God in that moment. It is not a wait and see righteousness. It is a here and now righteousness. And that is totally different from what you're going to find outside the gospel. It's a wise move on Paul's part to use the example of Abraham, because every Israelite would have recognized Abraham as the model for who they themselves were trying to be. And so Paul takes up this somewhat odd question of when was Abraham circumcised? Now, I'm doubtful that many of you men out there have ever had someone come up to you and ask this question, and I'm not going to suggest it as a coffee hour icebreaker. But we know, right, that circumcision wasn't just a medical procedure. It was a commandment. It was an act of obedience. It was a way that you identified yourself as part of God's people. Our equivalent today might look more like asking one another um, when we first put our faith in Jesus or when you were baptized. And so it was a big deal. In fact, it, um, for many, it became a badge of righteousness. You can look at verse 10, and Paul is making the case here for the timing of, just, of Abraham's justification. And he asks, was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So you can hear those words of timing, the before and after that Paul uses. And he's saying that it's critical to understand that when heaven rejoiced and declared Abraham righteous, it was before he had done any act of obedience, before he had earned it, before he had checked circumcision off of his list of things to prove that he was a follower of God. It was by grace that Abraham was reckoned righteousness, righteous. And to make the point further, Paul brings up the Mosaic law in verses 13 to 15. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now the law he's talking about here is the law that came through Moses way after Abraham. And again, many Israelites reading this would have said, Moses's law is the gold standard. That's what we need to follow. But Paul says, look at this, the father of your faith didn't even have the law. Abraham's justification is early proof that God justifies his people through his grace and by faith. Now, I want you for practical purposes to take circumcision out of your mind and think about that thing that you look to for your sense of righteousness. Meaning, what's that thing that if you had it, you could stand before your boss or your parents or your kids or your professor or Congress or even God and say, I feel good about myself. Is it if you could make it to that next pay grade in your job or get a job or into an inner circle of friendship? Is it, is, is it hitting a certain number on the scale? Or is it thinking that people um, see you as holy and passionate when you worship? Is it a GPA number? Is it a chance to get a certain person's approval or getting married or having kids? If I could have these things, then I would feel good and right about myself. And God would too. But that is being justified after. That is looking for our justification to be what we do in life. And the gospel teaches us that it is not a wait and see justification. It is here and now. And at the point where there is every reason for someone to look at you and say, failure, and the point where you couldn't amount to any righteousness or achieve any of the things that you want to stand for, the things that you want to be your legacy, God looked at you, at us, and he sent his son to die so that we would be accepted. The grounds of God's justification is simply love, and the means of his justification is Christ's death and resurrection. So let's talk a little bit more about the means of justification. What does Paul want us um, to understand about how justification happens? If you look back over Romans 4, Paul uses this accounting term 10 times to get his idea of righteousness into our heads. He uses the term counting. It was counted to him as righteousness. Other translations use the word crediting or reckoning. Now, if you have a job, you might have what's called direct deposit. You don't get a physical paycheck. The money just goes straight into your account. Now, let's assume that your bank account just isn't doing too well, right? You've been in the red for some time. Maybe you had some unexpected financial hardships, I don't know, a pandemic or something, um, or you've been struggling to get a job. And so you've been waiting to get this first paycheck, not so that you can even get above zero in your account, but so that you can start to get close to zero out of debt. And so you're there waiting for that first $500 deposit from your new job. It's gonna drop in on Monday morning. And you look at your account balance Monday morning and there is $100,000 in your bank account, $100,000.
and you're confronted with this decision. What do I do about it? Do I take the money and run? Tempting, right? Do I call my office and ask if there's a mistake? Um, well, let's assume that you're a wonderful person. Um, you're going to call the office and you say, listen, there must have been a mistake. I got $100,000 this morning. And they say, oh, no, it wasn't a mistake. The CEO decided to give you his wages this month instead of yours. That is what the gospel is saying. That God, the CEO, decided to give you the righteousness of his son, the $100,000 direct deposit, so that you're not only out of debt, but you're way in the positive. Because we not only need forgiveness, but we need a righteous credit in our bank account. We need to be able to live out of the $100,000 deposit of abundance and not out of the poverty of debt, or even out of just a net balance of zero, not in debt, but really with no ability to live. We live out of the poverty of self-righteousness, a poverty of spirit, as some theologians would call it, but out of the abundance of sufficient grace. And by the way, I think if that happened, if we really did look in our bank accounts tomorrow morning and saw 100,000 new dollars in there, um, we wouldn't be going around saying, um, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely what I make every month. Look at this, guys. No, we would say, what an amazing gift that was just given to me. And Paul reminds us of the same thing. If you look at verse four, it says, now to the one who works, his wages were not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so Paul is saying, do you understand this righteousness is a gift? You work for a wage, but you could never work for this righteousness. And he uses King David, another big Old Testament hero, right? Now, David did a lot of righteous things. He defeated lots of God's enemies. He helped build the house of God. He expanded Israel's borders. But here, even David is saying, I cannot be justified by anything but grace. Blessed is he whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, verse 7 says. So Paul's using some Old Testament Jewish heavyweights, some big saints of the faith, um, to drill this point home. But modern people tend to think that we're justified according to our own standards and our own timing. Real guilt comes from failing our own expectations. We have to give guilt permission to exist. We convict ourselves of injustice based upon our own definitions of justice and when the timing is personally convenient. And that's a very modern and a particularly American way to think of justice. But you know, all short, and I think we all know that, right? If you go into the state Supreme courtroom and you listen to a trial, you'll hear them say, state of Florida versus Joe Smith. It's the standard of the state, a higher standard versus the person. And that is the correct view of justification. The kingdom of heaven versus Stephanie, court in session. Do we really wanna let that trial play out? I don't, um, I don't want that scene to play out. The gospel tells us what is required. <clears throat> Pretty straightforward. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. And whether that is your standard for righteousness or not, it is God's standard. And while it is possible for us to become more or less Christ-like in our lives, to love God and neighbor more or less, for those who have faith in Jesus, it is not possible to become more or less justified. 
So we've unpacked this when and how justification happens by grace and before we were obedient and while we were still sinful. And now let's look at how justification is received, which is by faith. Now, hopefully by now, this whole status of righteousness thing is something that sounds attractive, something that you want for yourself and your family and friends and neighbors. And so the natural follow-up question is, how do we receive it? And I use the word receive because Paul has made it clear it is not something that we get for ourselves, but something we're given. Gifts are received, not taken. So the faith of Abraham gets mentioned 11 times in this chapter. Our Old Testament reading included Genesis 15, 6, which Paul also refers to. And Genesis 15, 6 reads, and he, meaning Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that is the first time in the Bible that you find the word believe. And from then on in scripture, it is always used to describe what it means for people to have heard God's promises, to trust them, and then to reorient their life around those promises. Belief is what we do. Faith is what we have when we believe. Now, in modern times, when people hear the word believe or faith, they conjure up these images of wishful thinking or leaps in the dark. We've all heard this, right? It's, but that's not what the Bible means by faith. In the Bible, having faith means a leap from the evidence of your feelings and your present reality and into God's promises. Faith is leaping away from how I might feel and how I might see and perceive the world around me and leaping to God's perspective. It's not a leap in the dark, but it is a leap to something outside yourself. So consider Abraham. Now, Abraham and Sarah are old, and that point gets made over and over again, right? And God says, I'm going to give you an heir. Abraham can't look at his body or the body of any other 90 or 100 year olds around him and really find any evidence that they or he are about to have babies. The only thing he can look at is the promise he's been given from God. He has no worldly reasons to believe otherwise. And while he can look back at those who came before him and, and get a little bit of help maybe with trusting God's promises, there honestly just weren't that many great examples he could look to in history yet, right? Abraham receives his promise in Genesis 12 and it gets fleshed out a little bit more later on in Genesis. Um, and Abraham certainly does have a special and intimate relationship with God, but he doesn't have the benefit of centuries of God's promises coming true to bolster his faith. There was no communion of saints for him to draw encouragement from. And so Abraham's faith truly is how Hebrews 11.1 1 defines it, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And I think that as followers of Christ, there will come a point where God will corner you and you have to just trust his word like Abraham. You won't be able to look at other people's lives or the world around you and say, it'll be okay. Things are going to work out. Neither wishful thinking nor hard work will fix the problem at hand. It'll require faith. God is after our trust. And like with Abraham, God teaches us to trust him by promising things that no other person or job or culture or government could provide. I found that a lot of our testimony project stories have followed the same plot line as Abraham's story of faith. There's some moment in all of our stories when the thing that we need, whether it's peace or hope or physical healing or acceptance or the restoration of a relationship or the assurance of future plans, whatever it is, we find that it's not something the world around us is able to provide. And just like Abraham and Sarah realized the impossibility of a child, we come to that same point. And I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of our stories of faith lead us to a place where neither wishful thinking nor hard work can help. 
This is how God wants us to come to know him. He's after our trust. And verse 18 highlights this. It says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. Now, what does it mean to hope against hope? It means to cling to mere possibility, to believe however unlikely the circumstances. Abraham considered his body, the body of Sarah, and neither of these helped him believe. He looked at the culture around him and it wasn't able to help him believe. He considered his own track record with Sarah, right? It's not like they hadn't been trying to have kids and the barrenness of her womb and it didn't help him believe. And so he's really left with nothing to believe in but God's word. And so Paul leaves us with this amazing picture of Abraham as a man of faith. In verses 20 to 22, Paul writes, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And I think if we're honest, that is what we all hope someone would say about us at the end of our lives. But you might be thinking, well, I'm not 90 and I'm not about to try to have kids as a 90 year old. So what are the promises God is asking me to trust right now? Actually, I think one great way of reading the Bible is to go through it and to simply write down all the promises you see God make. I haven't counted, but I imagine there are hundreds. But in this text, Paul gives us the answer at the end of this passage. He says, believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Believe that Jesus justified you. Believe you've been made, that you've been made righteous before God through a promise already fulfilled, not a future uncertainty. And despite the good and bad deeds that you've already made this morning, right? If you're like me at least, and you'll continue to do for the rest of the week. That is the promise God and Paul are asking us to believe in and believe that that promise gives us righteousness by faith. The world around us gives us lots of things that require hope against hope. What Paul wants us to commit to here is a belief that God's promises are sure, that his track record of making good on his promises doesn't make our hope against hope foolish or naive. It makes our hope wise and well-informed. So what are the promises from God that seem too hard to have hope in these days? Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 promises rest for the weary. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 promises grace for the weak. Psalm 32, 8 promises wise counsel. John 16, 33 promises peace. Deuteronomy 31, 8 promises the Lord will never leave us. Jeremiah 29, 11 promises plans for the future. Exodus 14, 14 promises the Lord will fight for us. Psalm 91, 3 promises safety from death. And we could go on and on. We need these promises. When we look inside ourselves, we find an inability to love even our friends, let alone our enemies. And we realize just how much partiality our love has. And then when we look further out at the world, we see our own internal sin magnified right, into more systemic problems of racism and poverty and homelessness and hoarding and greed and self-righteousness, which fuels all of these. And like Abraham, I'm not sure what evidence we have to look at that tells us it'll all work itself out and get better. It won't. We'll always fail at loving perfectly. And even our best efforts, which are often good and right and honoring to God, even our best efforts to fix the problems of the world will always fall short. 
And so like Abraham, we're also left with really the only option that doesn't lead to despair, which is instead to have hope against hope that we have a God who keeps his many promises to fully restore the whole world and a God who justifies his people by faith and in love. Amen. As we head out into breakout groups this morning, um, I want us to consider um, two questions. You can pick one of them or both. Um, one is what part of justification feels hard to believe? Um, and the second is um, what do you feel like you need to have your hope restored in?